Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm uh, Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and welcome to the release of our new report, Beyond Pixie Dust, a framework for understanding and developing autonomy and unmanned aircraft. Now, the Air Force has been evolving concepts for teaming manned combat aircraft with autonomous uninhabited aerial vehicles, or UAVs for short, and the goal of this manned-unmanned teaming effort is to significantly increase combat capabilities and capacity beyond what's available today. The attention given to artificial intelligence, autonomy, and machine-to-machine -machine learning in recent years has resulted in an explosion of ideas regarding how to best incorporate these functions into military applications. Key among these is how they can be used to enhance desired effects when applied to UAVs. However, differing institutional perspectives between warfighters and engineers have created challenges between aircraft operational expectations and actual aircraft designs. This lack of shared understanding historically has created issues that threaten to disrupt this important technological effort. Now, in this report, Heather Penny and Chris Olson provide a valuable contribution to solving this challenge. They propose a two-part framework consisting of a warfighter view and an engineer view of autonomy. The warfighter view defines different levels of autonomy needed for UAVs to perform core aircraft control, mission, and teaming functions. The engineer view can then use the warfighter perspective to define and develop specific technologies and systems to meet operational needs. I'd tell you that this framework stands to provide the Air Force the means to accelerate the development and fielding of autonomous UAVs into our operational forces, and it's ready to be adapted by the Air Force now. So, to explain the analysis and the conclusions in more detail, we have with us authors Heather Penny, a senior resident fellow here at the Mitchell Institute and co-author Air Force Major Chris Olson. Um, we're also fortunate to be joined by John Charles Lede, uh, JC for short, the autonomy technical advisor to the commander of Air Force Research Laboratory. So let's begin with a summary of the report and let me turn it over to you, Heather and Chris. Thank you, sir. You know, so a paper on autonomy framework may seem like a fairly arcane topic or actually really arcane. And in reality, I was working on another man-to-man -man teaming project when it became clear that we were really talking past each other when it comes to artificial intelligence, autonomy and autonomous aircraft. So we were seeing major stakeholders during our research process, whether it was from the Hill, policymakers, senior leaders, strategists, warfighters, and engineers, we found that none of them were on the same page. So that's when we decided to take on this subject to begin to baseline our shared understanding of autonomy and autonomous aircraft. Because without that shared understanding across the entire enterprise, we face the very real risk of failing in this endeavor. Next. So I think the defense community is coming to a consensus that unmanned aircraft will be essential to the future force design of the Air Force, and specifically autonomous aircraft that team collaboratively with manned aircraft. There are a number of important reasons to do this. The autonomous teaming aircraft can affordably increase the Air Force's inventory of combat aircraft, and in contested battle spaces where we have to begin to anticipate more attrition than we've experienced for over a generation, these autonomous teammates will be able to provide resiliency and flexibility to operations. Furthermore, they'll allow us to explore and develop new operational concepts that prevent, present complexity and other dilemmas to adversaries. But bottom line, for any of this to work, human warfighters will have to trust their autonomous teammates. And that might actually be one of the biggest barriers that we face to developing and fielding these important technologies. Next. 
So during our research phase, as I mentioned, we talked with Air Force senior leaders, warfighters, planners, staffers on the Hill, engineers and technologists across the Air Force, DARPA and industry. And they all said that lack of trust was the largest barrier to adoption of autonomous teammates. And the reason is, is that we don't have the shared understanding of autonomy. Simply put, we're not speaking the same language and we're talking past each other. This miscommunication creates a major gulf between what the Hill thinks it's buying, what the Air Force's strategic planners envision, what its operational warfighters need and expect, and what aerospace engineers can deliver. So without the shared understanding, we can't have shared expectations of these systems. So folks are typically in one of two camps, right? Either believers or skeptics. And right now, some policymakers and senior leaders are divesting and almost risking collapsing our current force structure on the belief that these future systems will mature in field on time. That's a pretty significant risk to take on faith if we're overestimating the capabilities of, of our systems. Skeptics, on the other hand, can be just as dangerous if we fail to fully exploit the potential of these technologies. So we're not on the same page and it's creating these unmet expectations, misunderstandings and mistrust. And if this persists, engineers aren't going to build what warfighters need. Policymakers will make decisions about for structure and operations based off of false premises. And the Hill won't be able to provide informed oversight and warfighters themselves will find themselves at a disadvantage. This disconnect is a bigger problem than just the warm fuzzies of trust. Because if we don't get this right, what's really at stake is the Air Force's combat and operational advantage and a peer conflict. Next. So if you don't believe us about how confusing this all is, uh, let's just talk definitions in terms of reference. Uh, there, there's no widely accepted or common definition of autonomy. When we talked with warfighters, engineers, industry professionals in the Hill, we got different answers uh, regarding what they think you know, autonomy is and what autonomous means. Case in point, I'm sure that some of you, maybe even many of you, may disagree with the definitions that we have up here on the screen. Uh, while one might intuitively grasp what autonomy is and means in the MOMT application, it's the kind of you know it when you see it standard, the lack of a clear and shared definition leads to a breakdown of understanding between warfighters and engineers. They simply talk past each other. For this study, our proposed framework we felt that it was useful to make a distinction between automation and autonomy. We aligned our understanding of automation with deterministic programming and autonomy with machine learning. We did this to, to capture the sense from warfighters that automation was fixed and highly scripted, similar to an autopilot. It was predictable, rigid, and repeatable. The same input results in the same output and the system cannot respond in real time to any unanticipated stimuli. On the other hand, warfighters tended to think of autonomy as being more independent, self-directed and adaptive. And this implied to us some level of machine learning. Next. So if we don't have this shared understanding of what autonomy is, what it means or how it should be applied to autonomous teaming aircraft, how can we even begin to develop them? Next. So take this washing machine, for example. Some might say that the washing machine actually has a fairly high level of autonomy. After all, I can throw my clothes in the machine, add some soap, press start, and an hour later, it chimes to alert me that my clothes are magically clean. Next. But I think that we would all agree that the washing machine is not the same as R2D2. And we would probably agree that R2-D2 is closer to what warfighters think of and expect in an autonomous teammate. Next. So what's the difference? I would offer that one, the washing machine is automated and the other, R2-D2, is autonomous. Because the washing machine has a deterministic rule set by which it washes clothes. I have to program the cycle. I have to tell it, is it a heavy load? Is it a dirty load? Uh, what temperature I want the water to be? 
But once I've programmed it, the machine is totally capable of completing the cycle so long as everything stays within those parameters. It's pretty scripted, but my washing machine can't adapt. It can't identify whether or not the load is actually lighter or heavier than I told it was. It can't say whether or not the load is dirtier or less dirty than what I programmed at it. Um, and if the load gets unbalanced, for example, the washing machine just stops. It doesn't stop and rebalance the load. So we would define the washing machine as automated because it's deterministic. R2-D2, on the other hand, can independently self-direct and adapt. He can assess his environment, choose his own course of action, and even change that course if something surprising or unanticipated occurs. This ability to independently self-direct and adapt to unforeseen circumstances implies to us an element of machine learning. Next. So while autonomous might not be commonly defined as having artificial intelligence or elements of machine learning, we think that there's utility in aligning our understanding of autonomy with machine learning because frankly, it matches warfighter expectations of behavior. This sense of the difference between automated and autonomous actually is pretty similar to how the National Institute for Standards and Technology describes it. Human-less operation, automation, versus human-like performance, autonomy. In other words, our washing machine is not the same as R2-D2. The intent behind how we define autonomy is to capture the level of burden that the teammate imposes on his human flight lead and the ability of the teammate to adaptively respond on its own to unexpected circumstances. A more deterministic automation, for example, would impose a greater burden on the human flight lead to control, direct, or choose, choose courses of action for the teammate. Higher levels of autonomy, by contrast, would allow the human to provide the teammate with a command intent and then monitor and consent to the teammate's actions. It's an important distinction when you think about operationalizing these systems. But the problem is warfighters don't really know what kind of and how much automation or autonomy they need in their teammates. Engineers, on the other hand, often do not fully understand what warfighters need or frankly expect. So in short, there isn't a commonly understood framework that can help the Air Force to understand autonomous technologies to help guide the enterprise from where it is today to where it needs to be in the future. Next. First build, please. To show you how far uh, current technologies surpass DOD's current metrics, the only means we have to categorize UAVs is this, a framework that defines them by weight, speed, and altitude. Next build. This is about national airspace deconfliction, the FAA, and is really of no use to help warfighters or engineers understand autonomous teaming aircraft. We're also aware of DOD Directive 3009, Autonomy and Weapon Systems. This directive establishes policy to ensure that human judgment is not removed or subverted when semi-autonomous or an autonomous weapon systems are used in combat. And it also establishes guidelines to minimize the probability of unintended consequences. While we're in full agreement with the intent of 3009, it does not address the how. Uh, that is, it, it kind of assumes that we have an end state with autonomous weapon systems, but leaves unanswered the question of how do we design, build, and field those systems that will deliver value to combatant commanders. The next build, please. NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, has a framework for thinking about autonomy, but it does not address the unique elements of autonomous teaming aircraft. Next. Their conception is deliberately agnostic regarding platforms, but we found that to be unhelpful in demystifying this for warfighters. Next, please. What we did find helpful was the Society of Automotive Engineers framework for driving automation. Anyone who has a Tesla or even just adaptive cruise control or lane assist can look at this chart and find themselves. Now it's a framework, not a standard. So it's meant to be descriptive, not proscriptive. 
you can see that they have the levels of automation that go from nearly fully manual on the left to fully automated on the right. So that's more human work on the left and no human work on the right. So it, it captured nicely the notion of human burden. Next build. Another element that we liked were the auto features, which we adapted to behaviors, automated features, and functions. You can kind of think of behaviors, auto features, and functions as ends, ways, and means. Behaviors are the actions, the effects, or the outcomes that the human observes. Auto features are a discrete set of technologies and software that produce those behaviors, and the functions are the building blocks that the auto features are composed of. So let's take, for example, adaptive cruise control. The driver experiences this as the vehicle maintaining a constant distance behind the car in front of them. So the auto feature is adaptive cruise control, but the functions necessary would include, you know, LIDAR to measure the distance and closure rates, the ability to accelerate by controlling the throttle to the engine and the processing to know, you know, how much to push the throttle, the ability to decelerate by actuating the brakes and the processing to know how hard to brake. So, uh, different auto features can be combined to deliver different behaviors. For example, uh, if you take adaptive cruise control uh, and lane assist together, you get an even more hands-free driving experience, which further reduces the human burden. So what we liked most about this framework was how it accounted for the human experience of how automation assisted in the task. But it's still not a perfect template for autonomous teaming aircraft in combat. Uh, think about it. Most people have experience driving a car, but not a whole lot of people have combat experience. Next. So this is an overview of our two-view autonomy framework. This is intended to provide the connective tissue and translation between warfighters and engineers. Again, this is descriptive. It's not intended to be a specification or a standard. The primary purpose behind the two-view autonomy framework is to enable warfighters and engineers to clearly communicate and exchange ideas and requirements in a structured and consistent way. You can see that we categorize behaviors under core flight, mission tasks, and teaming tasks. Within each category, warfighters would identify the behaviors and the autonomy feature levels needed for the autonomous teaming aircraft to successfully execute its role. This category, the behavior, and then the autonomy level, then informs and provides an aim point for engineers to conduct their functional decomposition. That allows engineers to understand the right level of automation or autonomy, and then identify the hardware and software necessary to deliver that function or behavior, and then the underlying data needed to support those technologies. So you can see how this framework connects both the warfighter perspective and the engineer perspective. So we're finally speaking the same language. Next. The warfighter view, what we developed that by decomposing how pilots perform their cognitive and functional tasks during combat operations. Basically, what do combat pilots do in the battle space and how do they think of it? How do they mentally manage and execute those tasks? So basing this framework on a human pilot mental and functional model will help the warfighter intuitively understand the framework and accurately represent how they think and operate within the battle space. It, you can kind of think of this as a different approach to explainable AI, right? I understand that explainability and transparency within artificial intelligence machine learning is a very specific engineering term, but from a warfighter perspective, understanding how those interactions occur is an important piece of also understanding how the autonomy is functioning. So this should, as I mentioned, increase understanding of how those aircraft with the different levels of autonomy will behave and therefore increase warfighter trust in these novel combat systems. Now, I know everyone is probably wondering, where is communication within this framework, right? Aviate, navigate, communicate. We all hear that. Well, first of all, 
that saying is fundamentally about how pilots should prioritize their tasks. It isn't fully descriptive about what a combat pilot does. And communication is much more of a subfunction that supports every one of the behaviors in each of these categories. Communication isn't fully a category in and of itself. Build. Realistically, pilot decisions and actions are the result of complex trade-offs between each of these categories, while simultaneously making trade-offs across different timescales. A combat pilot is constantly weighing courses of actions that are constrained by what happened in the past, what the present demands, and what possible futures will require. So indeed, it's crucial for warfighters, aerospace engineers, and technologists to work together to fully map out the complex interdependencies and interactions between each of these categories as they develop and mature autonomous teammates that can meet warfighter expectations and mission demands. Build. And each of these behaviors or tasks can be assigned an autonomy level. You can see we've chosen to call the lower levels automation levels. We're deliberately implying that these are more likely to be more deterministic than the higher levels of autonomy. Now, all models are wrong. Some are just more useful than others. And we understand that in reality, these features are likely to have a mix of deterministic and machine learning programming. It's the balance that shifts. We also understand that these are really a continuous spectrum. Still, we think there's value in understanding them as levels. Otherwise, it's tempting to just firewall autonomy totally, right? If a little autonomy is good, more is better. These levels allow us to rethink just how much we actually need to achieve the behavior and effect we want. In some cases, we'll discover that less autonomy and perhaps more automation is a better solution. This model also allows us to have different levels of autonomy for each category and within each category. Next. So the engineer view breaks down the categories and levels that we define in the warfighter view into functions, technologies, and data. The functions or you know, the behaviors they enable is the key here because this is what connects the warfighter view to the engineer view. It also facilitates a dialogue on how functions in one category can or should influence a function in another category. This clarity of focus enables engineers to map and prioritize their developmental efforts to desired vehicle attributes and behaviors. So, you know, while the warfighter is concerned with kind of macro level mission execution, operational behaviors, and, you know, importantly, the role of the human in operations, the engineer is concerned with, you know, those underlying functions, hardware, software, and data that will be necessary to build an autonomous system that meets the warfighter's needs. In other words, the engineer view enables aerospace engineers and technologists to deconstruct warfighter requirements into the underlying technologies and foundational autonomy elements. Next slide. So we'll go through a very brief example of a notional missile truck or what we may begin to think about as an offboard weapon system. Here, the teammate carries additional missiles to increase the flight lead's magazine in an air-to-air -air scenario. Next. So you can see how within each category, the warfighter would describe the behaviors and functions that the teammate must be capable of doing. They would then identify the level of automation or autonomy. And again, think of this as a level of independent self-direction and adaptation that the teammate needs in that function or behavior. This enables the engineers to then begin designing and building the system. And crucially, to have a dialogue with the warfighters about the technology readiness of that, tech, of that autonomy level. It may be that scoping down the appetite of warfighters could rapidly accelerate the development of the teammate. Alternately, a higher level of autonomy might also be the better solution. But importantly, it's this framework that allows engineers and warfighters to communicate about the interdependencies between the categories, the behaviors, and the auto features. We understand that this framework, as we present it, is fairly simplified. 
Its value, again, is that it provides an operationally focused structure for engineers and warfighters to begin to map out autonomous teammates in a way that increases warfighter trust. Next. So you can again see how this process continues through the mission category, and there would be a number of different behaviors and functions within each category. Next. And finally, teaming categories. So the two-view framework establishes a common language and consistent structure for prioritizing research and development efforts, establishing system requirements, and developing teaming operational concepts. It's important to note that what have been traditional coordination efforts uh, that occur today, like exchanging slide decks or an occasional site visits, is not going to be enough to execute what we need for the future of these autonomous teammates. To gain the fullest benefit of the framework, early, close, and continuing collaboration between warfighters and engineers will be necessary throughout the entire develop developmental and operational life cycle of these important systems. Next. So we believe that this framework creates a structure of shared understanding of autonomous systems between policymakers, strategists, planners, warfighters, and engineers. This is the first step to establishing trust in these systems. You know, realistically understanding their capabilities and their limitations in ways that allow us to maximize combat utility. Importantly, developing this shared understanding will also enable the Hill to provide smart and supportive oversight. It will give senior leaders the ability to make better force structure and design decisions, strategists to envision ever more thorny dilemmas to present to our adversaries, planners to understand what capabilities they need, and our warfighters to explore and develop the operational concepts and tactics that fully exploit the potential of these technologies. If we are going to accelerate the development of autonomous teaming aircraft, we need real aim points that all stakeholders understand and agree to. We need to all be on the same page. Next. But no framework will be useful unless it's implemented. So we've just talked about the first two points. This two-view autonomy framework should formally reside within the A5. Because the A5 is responsible for defining requirements for new systems as part of the acquisition and development process, the A5 is best positioned to introduce and employ the framework. Yet, it cannot successfully move autonomy forward without the full participation of the operational community. Therefore, we also believe that the Air Force A3, Air Combat Command, and Global Strike Command should also champion the framework. The A3 staff has operational experience and deep ties throughout their community. The Air Warfare Center and the Air Force Research Laboratory, other defense labs, and with the A5, the acquisition community. ACC and Global Strike Command, as the initial and primary warfighter user communities, must also participate in the use and employment of this framework to develop autonomous systems to their expectations. Using and developing the two-view framework to its fullest potential will demand that the A5, A3, warfighters, acquisition professionals, technologists, and industry maintain a tight and collaborative interaction throughout the requirements definition, acquisition, and developmental life cycle. Next. Thank you. Back to you, sir. Yeah, got it. I was just searching for the unmute button. Okay, thanks very much, uh, Chris and uh, Heather, um, for that overview. And JC, thanks again for being here. What I'd like to do um, is offer you the opportunity to give us a couple of words uh, on, uh, on your impressions uh, before we dive into uh, some questions. So over to you, JC. Thank you, sir. Uh, it's a pleasure uh, being uh, here today with you and, uh, and uh, uh, an honor also. I'm a, a big fan of the Mitch Institute work and uh, the Mitchell Institute work, sorry. And, and, and this report is no exception. Uh, I really like uh, that uh, you brought the user perspective uh, uh, to the forefront. Uh, and I think uh, it was often missing from the other frameworks I'm familiar with. Um, uh, and that if we are uh, to deliver a robotic aircraft to complement our crewed aircraft, it, it is important that they fly and behave in the same manner our pilots do. Uh, but 
Before commenting further on the proposed framework, let me backtrack a little and, and open the aperture uh, more broadly than and this particular application of, of autonomy, if I may. In, in my view, autonomy is not so much describing a thing as it is describing how we plan to use that thing. Uh, in its simplest definition, autonomy is the authority we delegate to a subordinate to accomplish a task. So autonomy is the central principle behind mission command defined in Air Force doctrine as, and I quote, uh, an approach to see to that empowers subordinate decision-making for flexibility, initiative and responsiveness in the accomplishment of commander's intent. So mission command provides airmen operating in environments of increasing uncertainty, complexity and rapid change with the freedom of action needed to exploit emergent opportunities and succeed, end of quote. The same principle, uh, motivations and benefit, apply, to, uh, uh, apply when the subordinate is a machine. So for machine, I, I define autonomy as the bounded freedom that we grant to a system to decide and act on our behalf to achieve the commander's intent. From, from this very definition, you can derive the principal elements of autonomy, which I usually represent as three pillars and a foundation. The first pillar groups the algorithms necessary for the machine to observe uh, the environment, determine an appropriate course of action and implement it. The central pillar is the human system interface or HSI that enables the mission commander to define the mission or the task to be accomplished, but also enables her to review the plan the machine developed to ensure her intent was properly captured and approve or if necessary, modify the plan before during the mission. I refer to the last pillar as trust, as autonomy is granted on the basis of trust. To put it simply, if we're not sure the system will act as intended, we will not use it. Trust is a complex issue because it is gained differently depending on one's perspective similar to the warfighter view versus engineering view discussed uh, earlier. For example, engineers might trust the system because they have a deep understanding of the algorithms or uh, uh, the level of control uh, that the HSI provides. Uh, the warfighters, on the other hand, will typically gain trust through uh, extensive testing into continuous usage. Maybe the most important group though is, is the public uh, who has to also trust the system. And I think the public wants assurance that the system will act according to our values. Uh, in other words, will behave ethically. The last element uh, uh, in my four element um, example here is uh, support uh, uh, these pillars and forms a foundation of autonomy. I refer to it as the open environment. It is built upon uh, an open architecture deployed within a DevSecOps environment and includes things needed to develop the algorithms, the human system interface and the trustworthiness, uh, such as modeling and simulation, uh, data sets, test harness, so, or even test assets. So when I review a program, I, I consider all four elements. How will the system understand the context and decide what to do? How will the human tell the system what the task is and how will they be able to validate, influence or change the response? How will the trust how will we trust the system and ensure it is used appropriately? And finally, was the work done in a manner that facilitates future additions or upgrades and that enables the entire community to contribute? You may have noticed that the definition I said, uh, in, in the definition I said bounded freedom, that's because in general, we do not delegate our full authority. The machine autonomy will be constrained a priori by several factors, which will limit the courses of action it may uh, follow to achieve the commander's intent. In some simple cases, we might delegate the full authority to the system. However, in practical terms, when the machine operates in environments of increasing uncertainty, complexity, and rapid changes, as stipulated in the Air Force doctrine, and the decision is no longer trivial, we quickly withdraw our trust in the machine and we take back the authority. So for us to grant autonomy to the machine, we're going to need to have machines that are more flexible and responsive, which I think maps to uh, uh, the five levels, you know, two, three of automation and two of, of autonomy that uh, Heather and Chris discussed. 
But for, for us to grant uh, autonomy to the machine, we're going to need to, I'm sorry, the, uh, the uh, uh, oversimplistic machines or dumb machines, if you prefer, would likely uh, make the wrong decision. So it is not so much that autonomy is synonymous to intelligence, but rather that we need uh, uh, to add intelligence in our autonomous machines uh, for ethical and practical reasons. Uh, otherwise, uh, we, we are at risk of not achieving the mission or worse, uh, to violate uh, some rules or, or moral values. So I think the engineering view uh, proposed uh, aligns well with the necessity to increase intelligence uh, of our autonomous system and add flexibility to their behaviors. While the warfighter view might be more aligned with the uh, uh, HSI element, uh, but with a stronger consideration on the impact of the system on the user by the traditional view of controllability of the system. I think it is also helpful to, to distinguish as the report does between the core functions, the usual um, aviate, navigate, communicate, uh, or uh, the, the housekeeping task, if you prefer, from the mission functions and the collaborative functions. So I think the, the proposed framework is, is a useful tool to evaluate programs alongside the, the four elements I just mentioned. Well, uh, JC, thanks very much for that. Um, let's now dig a little bit more into some greater detail. Um, in the report, we deliberately linked autonomy with machine learning. And you just went over and identified kind of a, a different way of thinking about autonomy, which is based on authority. Now, I do not believe they're mutually exclusive, uh, but could you describe a, in a little more detail what you mean by authority and how that relates to increasing levels of autonomy? Certainly, uh, and, and, and uh, thank you for the question. I, as I explained, I, I, I believe one can equate the autonomy of the system to the authority we, we gave it. And, and that's a somewhat orthogonal uh, uh, access to, to what uh, you know, the report referred to as levels of autonomy, which I think I would equate more to the intelligence of the system more so than the autonomy of the system. Uh, uh, but those are, are certainly linked. So let me go through uh, uh, how the authority levels could be uh, decomposed. So for example, you might use the very same algorithm, um, uh, which has a, a certain level of uh, intelligence built into it, whether it's machine learning or some other form of, of algorithm. Uh, but initially you might uh, deploy this algorithm um, you know, as a, in an observer mode. Uh, or as Tesla calls it, a shadow mode. It's a role completely transparent to the user and that has no authority or uh, i.e. no autonomy. Then it might be used, the same algorithm might be used in an advisor mode, a role without direct authority, but with an interface to the user. A good example of that is Google Map. Right? You can put your phone in your car, uh, it can't drive the car, but it can advise you on, on, on what road to take. The next stage uh, would be an assistant mode where the system has partial authority but can be easily overruled by the user. That's the uh, old stability augmentation in general aviation, right? The, the, the uh, you know, partial authority autopilots or uh, you know, in our uh, modern cars, the lane assistance mode. Following that would be a co-pilot mode, uh, able to temporarily take on certain tasks with full authority but with the pilot able to take back control at any time. The, the, the next step would be a full pilot mode uh, where the system is able to undertake all necessary uh, tasks to accomplish the mission. One might define one last mode, a mode in which the system cannot be overruled and, or, or its action cannot be undone. Uh, in this mode, the commander ceded her full authority and the system could be considered fully autonomous. As you can tell, each step requires more and more trust and granting full autonomy can only be done in very limited cases. A good example of that is AutoGCAS, our system to prevent ground collision in the F-16. Once the system is activated, the pilot cannot overrule it. And it took a long time for the operational community to accept the system despite its obvious benefits. So full autonomy also brings ethical questions. Uh, in, if an action uh, by the machine cannot be undone, we would need to have absolute confidence in the system. 
which uh, at this time is only possible again in very limited cases. So I think the benefit of, of this construct I just went through is that it provides a way to gradually deploy autonomy and that this results in greater capabilities in the hand of the warfighters much faster than if we had to first prove the system is trustworthy enough uh, to, uh, to jump to a high level of autonomy. That was great. Um, uh, it's an excellent rundown. And your example is a very good one. Um, he, 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 the, the last one with uh, Auto GCAS and the F-16, you know, it, it gets people to understand, hey, we, we're already doing this. We are already delegating uh, 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 authority, if you will, to uh, an autonomous capability. So, Heather, let me uh, ask you uh, what your thoughts are on how JC defines autonomy and, and whether or not that upends our framework. Actually, I think that JC's discussion of authority is very complementary to our framework. And as an aside, it also, in addition to uh, a, a potential path to fielding autonomy, has the opportunity to allow us to begin to integrate, um, be an integrating principle of AI ethics, right? The question of autonomy ethics was not something that we specifically uh, looked at in the scope of what we were trying to do because we really wanted to focus on how we can create a framework to be able to create a shared understanding and a, a sort of a technical pathway for what the warfighter needed and expected. The main difference, I think, between how we looked at autonomy levels and how JC is looking at uh, you know, authority levels is that we wanted to um, align our autonomy with the level of burden that a flight lead or an airborne mission commander would have in collaborating with their autonomous teammates similar to authority levels, but as JC alluded to regarding um, greater authority and flexibility would, would probably require greater intelligence. That's what coupled our expectation that these teammates would be able to independently adapt to changing circumstances. So of course one can imagine an AI algorithm that has no authority and a very deterministic algorithm that has total authority. But we didn't think that these cases represented what warfighters expected from autonomy, which is why we thought it was useful to link the higher levels of machine learning with those higher levels of autonomy. Now, let me be clear that we don't expect that our definition of autonomy or autonomy levels implies an either or when it comes to deterministic scripted programming or machine learning. We think that both of these will be present in a mix and it's the balance that shifts as you rise up the autonomy levels. And also, it's important that, to note that we're not implying that machine learning is always the best answer for the behavior. More machine learning is not always better. Users have to right-size the level of autonomy for the task, the time frame, and the technology readiness. Thanks for that. Let me, uh, let me turn to Chris. Uh, you mentioned the transition from level three to level four represents a change from a deterministic automation to non-deterministic decision-making. Um, how can our operators be sure a machine is gonna act the way that they expect in combat? Yes, sir, uh, you're right. So <clears throat> a machine making you know, non-deterministic decisions cannot be fully verified and validated in the traditional sense we think of when it comes to developmental and operational testing. So I, I think it's gonna require us to kind of shift the way we think of testing when it comes to level four and five autonomous teaming aircraft. Uh, now, there's a lot of research on the topic and probably some PhDs out there right now listening to this sitting up in their chair. So uh, I'll just say my personal opinion is that we'll have to test uh, these autonomous aircraft something akin to the way we test our human pilots. That is through reps, whether those reps come from training, exercises or combat. Uh, this also gets uh, to, to what JC was talking about, the trust issue. You know, how does a seasoned pilot build trust with a brand new wingman who just came out of the training pipeline? You know, initially they show up to the unit, there's this uneasiness because this new wingman is an unknown quantity. Um, but, you know, through reps, in training, at exercises, and eventually in combat, the wingman slowly earns the trust of the senior pilot. Now, does that mean that, that we can eventually train human pilots to the point where they never make a mistake and, and they never make a suboptimal decision? Of course not. Uh, but if that trust is strong enough, um, mistakes can be corrected and that trust can be preserved. So 
you know, I, I think the human pilot model for test and trust, you know, while not a perfect fit for machines, just because, uh, you know, we mentioned earlier, explainable AI, we're going to have to have some advances there so we can understand, you know, why a machine made the decision it made. Um, but that model, I don't think is going to be far off from the right answer for autonomous aircraft. Uh, well, thanks for that, Chris. Um, Heather, um, one of the topics uh, that often comes up when uh, discussing uh, autonomy, uh, and uh, JC mentioned it in his remarks, um, is ethics. Uh, this is particularly relevant uh, given what JC said about authorities and how much freedom to decide and act uh, the UAV or teammate has as they go up in autonomy levels. Um, uh, do you believe that uh, ethics is something uh, uh, perhaps we should have addressed more in our framework, or is it enough of a separate issue to treat elsewhere? Well, we understand that ethics is a key consideration for any autonomous aircraft. And we are not advocating for killer bots or slaughter bots. These teammates are going to be anything but that. We're not working towards that kind of dystopian future. Autonomy ethics is something that will be integrated into every element of autonomy, especially when it comes to the use of lethal force. As a consequence, we didn't think that ethics was a useful differentiator to include within this framework because it's going to be baked into everything. Humans will always have the review, approval, consent, and even veto when it comes to employing force or other effects. No doomsday machines here. Furthermore, humans will monitor and supervise their teammates, even at the highest levels. So they will bear the responsibility of these autonomous teammate actions, just as a flight lead is always ultimately responsible for the actions of their human wingmen. Furthermore, we know DOD is already beginning to address this concern. So we believe that ethical considerations will be omnipresent across the categories and the levels of autonomy. And it's not like we develop a framework that might suggest a system could have varying levels of ethical behavior. No, thanks for that. And there's so much more to discuss, but what I'd like to do is uh, move on to audience questions. Uh, and for our listeners out there, just a reminder, uh, you can participate uh, by using the raise hand function on the app uh, or submit a question through uh, chat. Um, when you are called upon, please state your name and affiliation. Um, so with that, um, our first question comes from uh, Bob Ho. Over to you, Bob. Thank you, sir. I uh, just wanted to unmute there. First, I'd like to uh, compliment uh, you all on this uh, initiative. Years ago, when we were, oh, you wanted my affiliation. Sorry, I'm uh, I'm retired Air Force uh, fighter pilot, uh, requirements officer, and now uh, still working with industry in the technology transition areas. Uh, so, years ago, when we were developing operational requirements, we sometimes lacked a high-level champion, and I think uh, based on SecAF's remarks yesterday. Uh, it dovetails in with exactly what we're talking about today, uh, implementing uh, his seven operational imperatives with both co-leads, a tech lead and an operational lead. And I think that's really good. And I think you have SECAF as a champion for all this right now. However, there are always administration changes, there are budget inconsistencies, and there are continuing resolutions and so forth that we are still fighting after uh, all these years. So I, I think uh, I like your thoughts on how uh, we as a community and you as uh, the Mitchell Institute can develop a long-term consistent champion for this technology, which I think is critical to us in the future. Thank you. Yeah, great question, Bob. Um, Heather, you want to take that one on? Sure, I'll go ahead and, and jump in. You know, it, as you mentioned, Bob, administration changes and churns. How do we make sure that this framework and this approach ends up getting uh, implemented? Well, so there's broad consensus across the enterprise that autonomous teammates will be necessary towards the types of, of high-end conflicts that we may face in the future. So there is that, that bureaucratic acceptance 
of this path moving forward. The question is how we implement that. The framework costs nothing to implement. It's really about creating that that dialogue, that shared understanding, communication across uh, the user community and the technological community, and even provides value um, to policymakers, senior leaders, and the Hill as well. So we are actually engaging the service right now to explain the framework. They actually, they also at the staff level, understand that there's a need there. Um, so there's no reason for them to reinvent the wheel. They can simply use this. Yeah, I'll just add, Bob, because it's an excellent point. There are a couple of these areas that require champions at the senior most level. Um, uh, I think Heather speaks well to this one. The secretary spoke well to it yesterday. The other one that's a forcing function uh, simply is budget. Uh, which is one thing we haven't talked about yet, but by introducing man-to-man teaming with uninhabited aerial vehicles, uh, we can greatly uh, amplify our combat effects um, with reduced investment. So they'll, that will be sort of a, an underlying behind-the-scenes uh, push or champion, if you will. Uh, but it's an excellent point, and it, it has application in many areas, uh, the, the biggest other one that comes to mind that we've been floundering with is a department of the defense, not just Air Force, is joint all domain command and control. Uh, and until there's a champion, and I would suggest to you, it's gotta be the Secretary of Defense who raises the issue every week, um, will continue to, uh, to not progress as fast as we should. But I digress. Let me turn to a question from, uh, uh, our chat room, this is from Andrew uh, Van Timmeren. What is the first operational training use case that will enable crude, uncrewed teaming the fastest? Can we go from zero to sprint or will there be iterative pathways? Whoever wants to take that one. JC, you're, you're the one that's... Uh, in the so, uh, I, I think, you know, um, we are really interested in uh, uh, looking at applying um, unmanned aircraft uh, in uh, uh, our adversary air um, uh, enterprise. Uh, we, we think this is, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the um, SAE uses uh, uh, these uh, four levels, level four being uh, kind of in, a, a, you know, full autonomy, but in a constrained environment. And I think you know that that's a, a great example of a constrained environment uh, where we control a lot of the variables, but we still want to enable uh, more autonomous behaviors uh, to uh, uh, have more realistic uh, training uh, and reduce the cost and, and the burden we are putting currently on a, a bunch of manned aircraft that are uh, playing the the red team. So that's that's an example of a of a of a, you know, application that is uh, uh, coming up, I think, uh, fairly soon. Excellent. Um, here's one from uh, my dear friend, uh, re retired Lieutenant General Tom Owen. Uh, Tom asks, how can we best use expanded modeling and simulation to more rapidly validate and test these new autonomous systems? I think this is a great point. And in fact, one that we need to work more on. We really need to have high fidelity modeling and simulation systems that are good enough that we would trust the testing done inside the modeling and simulation. Why? Because in many cases, we are actually not able to reproduce the testing we need to do in real life. Uh, uh, you know, when we're looking at a complex uh, uh, system of system construct with many, many different um, uh, assets, uh, including, by the way, red assets, which uh, may or may not be possible to reproduce, uh, or for security reasons, we don't want to do this in open air. So we're going to need to test our autonomy much more in the virtual world, in the modeling and simulation. And that is uh, a key element uh, in uh, succeed, uh, succeeding in deploying autonomy, absolutely. Uh, thanks, JC. Um, here's one from Kenny Bowers from Area One. How do you build trust in a system when an algorithm may do something optimally, but non-human-like, 
versus developing an algorithm to have more human understandable behaviors. Chris? Uh, go, oh, Chris, go ahead and take this and I'll, I'll add on top. Okay, all right. So I was just gonna say that I think that's, that's a good question. And, and I think it comes down to what I talked about earlier, the, the kind of experience. Um, you know, whenever, whenever it's about making sure that we have experience in those training and those exercise scenarios, but, and, and that the first time they encounter that optimal algorithm is not uh, in an operational scenario. Um, you know, because the first time they encounter it, they're going to be like, oh, that, that was a little weird. Why did it do that? I don't understand. Um, but the more that they un do understand it, maybe from talking to the engineer and also just through repetition, getting experience with it, um, it will become more familiar. And, and I think even though it may not be human like, they'll be okay with it. So that's just my, my take. I agree with Chris. Um, and I think this also builds off of what JC had mentioned regarding the requirement, really the, the, the urgent need we have to be able to begin deploying some of these um, algorithms in the modeling and simulation environment, because those repetitions, that familiarity and that experience will be essential to developing trust. There are other fields that employ uh, uh, machine learning and human teaming. Centaur Chess is one particular example, uh, where then you have optimal and, and really unexpected solutions from the algorithm that humans then have the ability to exploit in creative ways. But I think another thing that's important about this is not just simply the, the experience and familiarity, but also, as I mentioned, the way that we propose thinking about um, autonomous teammates within the core, the mission and the teaming, because we modeled that after human, how humans think in the battle space, how combat pilots think about their missions and what they do in the battle space, that provides a level of explainability to make those decisions more human understandable. Okay, here's one from uh, Dan uh, Schreider. And Dan, I hope I pronounced your last name right. Um, how do we address autonomous functions embedded in an automated operation? If the system has to interpret its environment to determine an action, then how do we evaluate that sub-process? Anyway. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll take a crack at your, at your question, sir. I see JC unmuted as well. So, um, so I... I think what you're getting at, and, and, and I think it works perfectly with our, with our framework, although I'm biased, is that, you know, the, it, when we talk about the warfighter view, you know, we're ultimately interested in the outward behavior, like, like, what does it do for me in combat? What does it do for me in the battle space? Um, so uh, what you're getting at, I think, draws the perfect line between, okay, we know what the, what the warfighter wants to see in the environment, uh, but the warfighter really doesn't care about the subprocess. So uh, that's up to, to, to me on the engineer side. To, to pull that thread and say, this is what the warfighter is looking for. Let me pull that thread down through the functions, technologies, and data. That, that's the sub-processes. So, you know, I, I put on my glasses and I start talking about algorithms and optimization routines. Um, that, that's the piece that I'm interested in. So I want to figure out how does that sub-process, um, how do I connect that? How do I draw the line between that sub-process and what the warfighter ultimately observes? Um, so that, that's how I kind of see that. Uh, I think it's a perfect application of the framework. JC, you want to add anything? Uh, I, I was uh, just didn't want to let my colleagues hang here if nobody wanted to take it. I think Chris <laughs> did a great job. <laughs> okay, real short, uh, a last wrap-up question for Heather. Uh, you and Chris developed this framework uh, for autonomous teaming aircraft uh, within the context of specific Air Force mission sets. Does the framework have broader application to other autonomous platforms such as unmanned undersea vehicles or unmanned ground vehicles? Absolutely. You know, you're right that we focused our framework on autonomous teaming aircraft. I mean, after all, we modeled the warfighter view off of combat pilots, you know, cognitive tasks. But we believe the framework can actually be adapted to other autonomous teammates in other domains. You know, again, the key here is the two-view perspective, modeling the warfighter view on whatever those warfighters are doing, what their cognitive functions, mental tasks, and what they actually do within the battle space and the mission set matches then how that flows down to the engineer view, because it's how they expect their teammates will behave. 
So we could easily imagine uh, um, an under uh, undersea unmanned undersea vehicle. So a UUV framework would be, uh, you know, the framework would remain largely intact, but the, the subcategories would be more specific to the demands and expectations of submariners and other undersea operations. No, that's very good. And uh, uh, unfortunately, folks, we've come to the end of our uh, rollout of our latest study on a framework for understanding and developing autonomy in unmanned aircraft. So to Heather Penny and Chris Olson and uh, JC Lede, uh, many thanks for sharing your insights into these issues. And from all of us at Mitchell Institute, have a great aerospace power kind of day.